welcome to episode 126 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, I, and um, this is our last podcast uh, until uh, the until September. So we're taking the month of August off, uh, uh, but it'll be a uh, uh, Fun news roundup and a fun interview. Uh, the interview will uh, uh, feature uh, Andy Irwin from Steptoe and Johnson, who uh, uh, is uh, deeply uh, um, enmeshed in some of the government contracts and uh, uh, cyber issues, um, as well as Ed Hammersley, who's the uh, Chief Strategy Officer uh, and President of Force Point Federal. Uh, uh, thanks, Ed. And uh, Brian White, who is the COO at Red Owl Analytics. Uh, so we'll be uh, uh, bringing all of them in for our interview. For the news roundup, we're going to talk about, talk to Katie Castle, an attorney in our International Regulatory Compliance Group and uh, somebody who's really been doing nothing but cyber for like two years. Uh, uh, so uh, thank you for joining us, Katie. Thanks, Stuart. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, Maury Schenk uh, will be on the line as well. Uh, he's a uh, uh, former managing partner of our London office, uh, now advising us on European technology issues, as well as doing some private e- equity investment of his own in technology companies. Um, so, Maury, uh, welcome. Thank you, Stuart. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, uh, formerly with the NSA, with DHS, and holding the record for returning to step to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Why don't we jump right in? Uh, um, this is um, this has got to be the most political news roundup I'm going to do because we're going to be talking all about partisan uh, uh, politics, uh, including. Uh, in fact, maybe we'll jump right into this one, uh, uh, Maury, if you're willing. Uh, uh, whether uh, the uh, massive uh, Democratic National Committee leaks that have now claimed a scalp. Debbie Wasserman Schultz has stepped down uh, because of of what the leaked uh, uh, email said about Bernie Sanders and her role in tilting the process in favor of Hillary Clinton. Uh, um, And the question is, is, um, uh, have the Russians... Uh, carried out this hack, released all this information because they want Hillary uh, to lose and uh, uh, Trump to win. Uh, I have to say that it's remarkable in the last couple of, a couple of days, uh, more and more evidence is coming out that suggests that this was a Russian hack and that the Russians are doing it um, in substantial part to uh, uh, tilt the election. Yeah, it, it looks that way. I mean, the forensic, the digital forensic evidence um, is, it's hard to believe that it's not a Russian-affiliated attack. Either that or somebody who's very clever at pretending that it's a Russian-affiliated attack and then getting the Russians to deny it. And just politically, one thinks that Putin is happier in a world where uh, great power conflict um you know, it is goes on, and and I think the Donald Trump world is is much more that. So it's it's credible to believe it. Yeah, he has he has he has shown a propensity to put a lot of effort into populist anti-establishment movements, arguably authoritarian movements in the West. On the theory that anything that shakes up the establishment uh, and the values that sort of underlie the um, transatlantic alliance is has got to be good for him uh, and and can't be bad. Uh, you know, he, he he's funded he's helped fund uh, Marine Le Pen. Uh, um, uh, he, um, I, as I remember, he's uh, been enthusiastic about uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary. Uh, and yeah. th- th- this, I have to say, it just feels like a Russian uh, thing. You know, his, uh, Putin's specialty is doing things you don't think he'd dare to do. Yeah, and maybe stirring the pot elsewhere as well. You were spe- uh, speculating this week that maybe some of the uh, the hack in Turkey of all the government email, which are being called the Erdogan emails, would be could be associated with him. I think there's much less evidence of that, but certainly. Yeah, doing what you wouldn't expect and generally stirring the pot globally is uh, what you expect out of the Russians. Yeah, 
And, and you know, just the, the the whole WikiLeaks connection. Uh, more and more, WikiLeaks looks like it's a wholly owned subsidiary of the uh, of Russian intelligence. Uh, uh, they they once threatened to 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 release files on the Russians, and the Russians said, "You will regret that," uh, and they never did release it. Uh, uh, and since then, uh, Julian Assange has gotten his own uh, show on uh, Russian toadies or whatever RT stands for. I uh, so. Uh, all of this begins to look as though they have discovered that they can get away with doing this uh, and that uh, releasing these files uh, because of Snowden's having set the precedent uh, uh, is treated at face value by our um, uh, by the press. All right. Uh, well, uh, continuing on our political theme uh, there, it's time to take apart the uh, the two platforms, the two parties. I, uh, uh, I'm astonished that uh, considering how much uh, uh, Hillary and Trump hate each other, it's kind of remarkable how close their platforms are on encryption. Uh, uh, here's the uh, um, the GOP platform on encryption is. Uh, Oh, encryption's bad. It's good. Uh, it's not going to be easy to balance privacy rights with the government's legitimate need to access encrypted information. But the information, the issue is too important to be left to the courts. A Republican president and a Republican Congress uh, must listen to the American people and forge a consensus solution. Uh, 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 that's a punt for sure. Uh, and Hillary, um, uh, says she rejects the false, this is her tech policy paper, but much the same that came out of the platform. Hillary rejected the false choice between privacy interests and keeping Americans safe, and she proposes the, uh, uh, the McCall Warner uh, Commission, um, uh, to find a solution that, uh, uh, the, the Democratic platform is unwilling to name. Uh, I, I think you know, I have to say uh, my sense on this is having been in the rooms where a whole bunch of Washington insiders get together and talk about what the platform ought to say on important issues or what the policy papers ought to say, uh, there's nobody in that room who isn't paid to say what Silicon Valley wants said, with the possible exception of a few people who are there as professional uh, uh, civil libertarians. So what I find significant here is that in no case did those views prevail. Uh, I think this uh, uh, tells us that uh, professional politicians think that it's not smart to embrace Silicon Valley's views on this uh, because most Americans are going to find them unattractive in the long run. At least that's my guess about uh, uh, where things stand. Uh, and the other, uh, I have to say, this, this, this I, I enjoy. The other, uh, uh, piece of the GOP platform that I thought was quite amusing was, uh, uh, their, uh, stance on, uh, uh, hacking, which is that users have a self-defense right to deal with hackers as they see fit. You kind of imagine them, uh, doing stand your ground in, in the middle of your network, uh, firing away at the attackers. But this is a, uh, a genuine reflection of the failure of the Justice Department's effort to say, oh, hacking back, it's just so immoral and such a bad idea, no one would do it. That, that is... Uh, no longer sustainable when one of the two largest, uh, one of the two large parties has said, uh, you know, there might be something in this hacking back. Uh, so I thought that was uh, uh, fun and interesting, uh, I, but um, and and an opportunity for me to say, I told you so, uh, Justice Department, get with it. Um, some real law. Uh, uh, moving off of that, um, I, the Ninth Circuit for the second time in a month, has ruled on what it takes to violate the CFAA, and uh, they're taking on all kinds of grief for uh, uh, for their ruling. Uh, Katie, what, uh, what did the Ninth Circuit do this time? So this time it was a civil case. Um, Facebook sued a company called Power Ventures um, that had launched a promotional ca- campaign uh, that allowed its users to kind of click a button on its website, which would create an event or a posting on their Facebook profile and send out to face 
all of their Facebook friends, um, you know, a Facebook message or an email from Facebook inviting them to this promotional event for Powers. And Facebook didn't like this, and they uh, issued a cease and desist letter to Powers and also tried blocking their IP address. Um, but Powers just kind of kept going with their campaign, changed their IP address, and ignored the cease and desist letter. Um, and so the Ninth Circuit found under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act that um, while initially Powers had reason to believe that their users were authorizing them to access the Facebook's computers and their user data, once they got the cease and desist letter, Powers knew that Facebook didn't want them accessing their computers, and so the access was no longer authorized and that, that those actions violated the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. So uh, we, we, the, um, the Ninth Circuit in uh, Nozzle 1 or 2 or 3 or it had, it, it said um, just because um, you're told don't access this, it doesn't mean that you're unauthorized when you do it. Uh, what's the difference? Right. So they so they didn't really explain. They, they tried to limit this and say this wasn't a terms of use case. Um, the Powers Ventures never agreed to the website's terms of a use. They weren't under congr- contractual obligation. And that uh, simply violating terms of use is not considered unauthorized access, even if it's done intentionally. But that once you get something like a cease and desist letter, it is. But so a binding uh, contract... Um, violating a binding contract is not unauthorized access, but uh, defying a letter that you get from what the lawyers of uh, uh, Facebook uh, is unauthorized. Right. That's that's pretty much what they um, what they said, and they didn't really give any kind of good reasoning for for distinguishing the two situations. So. Well, okay. <laughs> um, uh, well, we can look forward to. Uh, uh, what the in bank review and then the we didn't really right. mean it uh, opinion that comes after uh, should be fascinating. Uh, okay. Um, oh, and why don't we, uh, 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 Maury, uh, talk a little bit about the uh, U.S. U.K. agreement and the proposed legislation that's coming up. To, uh, we talked about that uh, a session or two ago, uh, but we're starting to see press reaction and lobbyist reaction. I've been sort of surprised uh, how low-key the reaction has been. As, as we talked about, uh, the uh, uh, there's no surprise that Silicon Valley wants this. It's no surprise that the Justice Department uh, thinks this is a good idea. No surprise that the U.K. would think it was a good idea. I thought there would be real pushback from the privacy groups, even though their funders uh, in Silicon Valley uh, are on the other side. But it's a pretty modest, weak Protest. We're seeing some protests from um, privacy groups, but not much. Well, when I've looked at these issues with clients in the past, and um, the reason why our communications company clients tend to like this kind of thing is because it establishes a legal framework that avoids conflict of law problems for uh, providing this kind of information. So Microsoft would provide it under this U.S.-U.K. agreement or U.S. with another country. They'd provide it under the international com- proposed International Communications Privacy Act that would provide extraterritorial jurisdiction. And I think the privacy groups as well like there to be you know, sort of a clear legal regime for access to data. So they've said, well, you should be careful. Maybe the U.K. is going to ask for data in a less, uh, you know, their warrant process may not be responsible as responsible as the U.S. process, which is an interesting flip of what we're seeing in the EU data protection context. Well, but it, it, is a rule it of has law the process. advantage of being true in this case. Yeah. But in any event, I think the privacy group, okay, they don't want an expansion of access to information, but they see that they won the Microsoft extraterritoriality process and that we're going down a rule of law route that they probably have to live with in today's um, cyber investigation world. Boy, that gives them a lot of credit. I'm, I'm, uh, I've always assumed that they just were against government getting access uh, to data, whether it was the U.S. government or anybody else. But if they had to pick a bad guy, it will always be the U.S. government uh, first and, and other governments second. And maybe that's what we're seeing here. Yeah, I mean, that may be a simplified way of what I'm saying, but uh, of what I'm saying. And I think the charitable way is saying they're voting for the rule of law rather than expansive, unclear powers. 
Well, we'll see. If that's the case, then this this actually has a chance to pass, although it's not going to pass this year. Um, what's the uh, the view in the UK? Are we are we hearing uh, complaints from privacy groups uh, in Europe? Um, I have not heard any complaints about this. I mean, the UK attention has been um, focused on a bill expanding UK investigatory powers that was being spearheaded by our Home Secretary, Theresa May, who's now busier as Prime Minister dealing with Brexit. So I don't think anybody's talking uh, about anything besides Brexit these days in the UK. Um, and I, I think less less so in Europe as well. But I, again, in Europe, I think people like this kind of international agreement as an alternative to extraterritoriality. So I don't see a lot of um, uh, protest to it. Wow, oh, it's going to massively expand um, uh, European governments' access to uh, to data, uh, so you can see how their governments would like it. Uh, uh, but you know, again, given the idea that it's bad for the U.S. and good for European governments, uh, many of the European groups that first hate the U.S. and then hate other governments uh, are probably going to be pretty quiet about it. That'd be interesting. Um, so, uh, what about? Um, the data retention rules, which uh, in the UK um, suffered some real setbacks in the courts, and, and now the UK has taken them to the European Court of Justice, and it looks as though uh, at least the Advocate General uh, uh, thinks the UK's case is pretty good. Yeah, well, what happened in 2014, the uh, European Court of Justice invalidated the data retention directive. Um, but a lot of EU member states kept their data retention laws in place or upgraded them to try to be in accordance with the, what the ECJ had said. Um, those laws have been, some of them challenged on the same principles, and now the ECJ has a case involving the UK and Swedish laws in which the Advocate General has said, yes, national laws can be in, in compliance with uh, European privacy rules, but it has said they have to follow all of the principles that were set out in the 2014 ECJ decision. Or that, that's what the Advocate General has said. It's not clear whether the UK and Swedish laws will survive those standards, although that will be decided by the national courts if the ECJ follows what the Advocate General uh, had to say, and we'll see that in the coming weeks and months. Which they, they don't have to do, but it's, a, it's usually a straw in the wind. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, Theresa May just winning uh, uh, in all directions. Uh, life is good for and, her. And she seems to be a popular uh, prime, you know, people seem to believe here that she's uh, better than what the alternatives could have been, even the people who don't like her that much, uh, which includes me. Uh, I'm a little, I find her as a you know, as a dyed-in-the-wool liberal, a um, somewhat frightening, but she's uh, she's solid, and so um, I, I like her. Yeah, uh, well, and, and and she dealt with DHS a lot, and I think the uh, the folks that dealt with her at DHS uh, also respected her a lot. Uh, all right, uh, uh, one more uh, uh, bit of real law: uh, uh, Scott Trade uh, sued for breach and. Uh, um, they're going to change their name to Scott Free, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, so the court dismissed the class action related to the data breach they suffered. Um, it it had affected approximately 4.8 million individuals <clears throat> and included names, addresses, phone numbers, social security inf- numbers, you know, all the sensitive information. But the the hackers were alleged to have used it to operate an illegal stock manipulation scheme. Mm-hmm. But the plaintiffs didn't allege that. You know, they had themselves suffered any harm that any any of the data had been used for identity theft or fraud or anything like that. Um, and so the court found that there was no um, adequate injury to uh, confer standing on the plaintiffs because even though the information had been used for illegal purposes, um, it hadn't resulted in any harm from the plaintiffs. And it'd been two years since the breach. So there was just too much speculation to think the hackers would use it for for identity theft or fraud at this point. Boy, I I tell you, the uh, the folks who have invested in these breach cases on the plaintiffs bar are uh, I think feeling less and less like this is going <laughs> to pay off. Uh, it's amazing how hard it is to establish uh, liability in uh, uh, case after case where this comes in, and when you establish liability, it's like a buck and a half a victim. Right, right. Most of the cases, if there's if there's no no identity theft or, or instances of fraud, it, they pretty much just dismiss it, dismiss it, it seems. 
All right. Well, let's uh, uh, just closing up three or four uh, short items. The Homeland Security Committee released a report on ISIS terror plots since 2014. Uh, pretty good uh, report with remarkably good for uh, uh, government agency graphics uh, and uh, and an interesting message about the uh, extent to which uh, um, uh, ISIS has successfully um, uh, changed its tactics to hit the West, uh, uh, the extent to which uh, the United States remains its top, the top target for ISIS. Uh, I, and since the report came out, there's been probably an ISIS-inspired attack every day on average. So uh, worth looking at. Um, I have to uh, issue what I hope will be a short-lived apology to Silent Circle, uh, uh, which I described as silently circling the drain. Uh, uh, it certainly was uh, the subject of bankruptcy rumors and lawsuits over failure to pay suppliers, uh, but it has raised $50 million in funding, so uh, uh, if it's circling the drain, it has a much wider circumference than it did uh, a week or two ago. Uh, WhatsApp uh, had its weekly shutdown of uh, in Brazil uh, and its weekly turn back on. Uh, really, they should just uh, uh, they should just give them a number uh, and and skip the actual shutdown. Uh, twi- Twitter is in I think serious trouble, banning uh, Milo Yiannopoulos uh, uh, over. Uh, uh, just how bad uh, uh, Ghostbusters 3 is. Uh, I think it's 3. Anyway, the, the new one. Uh, and uh, uh, because a star um, blamed Milo for the abuse she was getting uh, on Twitter, uh, Twitter has permanently banned him. He's a provocateur. He's, he loves it. Uh, uh, the worst thing they could have done is, is um, uh, given him back his verification check. Uh, uh, that would have uh, would disappointed him. This, this just uh, increases his uh, uh, speaking fee on campus. Uh, and Edward Snowden is going to help develop a safer phone for journalists uh, uh, with technology straight from Russia. Thank goodness for that. Uh, let's jump into our uh, interview because uh, I, I think this we've got uh, two or three people who uh, will contribute to this. Uh, uh, we're going to be talking uh, uh, to Ed Hammersley and to Brian White and to Andy Irwin. Uh, the topic is narrowly um, a, a, a uh, rule that's come out from DOD that says um, you need as a, a supplier with a, a clearance to have pretty elaborate or at least specific uh, mechanisms for finding uh, insider threats and countering them. Uh, but I thought it'd be fun to talk a little bit about uh, this part of cybersecurity, I, I talk a lot about uh, the risks um, to cybersecurity from out- external hacking because I think they're uh, more serious. We've learned to live with insider threats for a long time. But uh, after things like Manning and uh, Snowden, uh, DOD can't afford to be uh, uh, to get too comfortable about the, that idea or to put all of its effort into stopping uh, uh, attackers from the outside. So, uh, uh, And most of the clients I deal with, when they tell us what security measures they want Steptoe to adopt, uh, at least half of them are really focused on insider trading, insider abuse of uh, information. So it's clear there's a, there's a big concern on the uh, uh, private sector side. So the real question here is, first, what is DOD doing and what can all the tools that we've developed for monitoring our networks uh, tell us about traditional insider threat? So uh, why don't I jump in, I ask um, Andy to tell us what the rule is and then ask our technical experts uh, 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 from Forcepoint, from Red Owl, uh, to talk a little bit about what technology can do. Sure. Thanks very much, Stuart. Basically, any company in the United States that does work with classified information has what's known as a facility clearance. And if you're a company that has a facility clearance, there is a, you are subject to a set of rules in what's called the National Industrial Security Program Operating Manual. And in May of this year, that manual was changed to formally require you as a cleared contractor to implement a set of policies and procedures, an actual formal compliance program, um, 
that you need to have in place by November of this year to detect, prevent, train, and report um, potential insider threats. Uh, there's a lot of detail. We'll go into some of it, but basically you need to have a compliance official in charge of it, and you have to come up with various solutions and training programs and the like. So, I, I, and I have never heard the title of this actually spoken. I, everyone I've ever spoken to calls it the NISPOM. Uh, it, 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 and that, uh, maybe that reflects the, uh, uh paucity of my social network. Uh, but it, it, basically they say you gotta have a system for doing this. And it could be that your facility security officer wanders around and slaps people on the back and says, how you doing? Uh, how's the wife? How's the kids? How's the mortgage? Uh, uh and how's that drinking going? I, uh, but nobody thinks that that's going to change life. Uh, so the real question for, and it's true, I think, for uh, uh, banks and uh, securities firms, is we know so much about our, tech, uh, our our employees now, and there's so much data out in open source. Uh, the question is how you can use that to try to identify um, uh, threats uh, that somebody is finally changing their mind about whether they really want to work for you and maybe whether they want to work for you know, somebody who uh, you know uh, is lives in Moscow or maybe just your competitors. So, Ed, let me ask. Uh, you guys make stuff, if I remember right, that really gathers enormous amounts of information about what's happening on the employer's network. Uh, I, and have you used that? For this kind of insider threat, uh, uh, to, to, to catch people who are halfway to defecting? Uh, yes. <laughs> um, but it's a different technology than you might think. It's not the traditional network security technology. Right. Um, because the key part of the NISPOM requirement is user activity monitoring, and that's a human being, right? Um, we typically implement this in a program that's about six or seven steps, and step six is technology. The rest is the right kind of policies, the right kind of privacy protection, uh, especially when you do it outside the U.S. There's a whole host of privacy concerns that need to be uh, woven into this overall insider threat program. But you mentioned Snowden. Of course, that brought a lot of visibility to this. The other piece that's uh, evolved is the term insider threat typically has referred to an employee or someone inside the organization. But the reality is the good external hackers become insiders. Sure, they they they, they escalate their privileges and they start Correct. acting like a sysadmin. Right. So that same technology that's tracking traditional definition of insiders is also helping with the external uh, attacks that mimic insiders. Yeah, So because if, if you are... Um, an attacker from the outside, you want to collect a bunch of information, then you want to encrypt it, then you want to uh, exfiltrate it. You want to take somebody's identity and become an authorized right. user, and then you have free reign, yes. right? And in fact, many of the vulnerabilities are things like print servers that nobody cares about because nobody patches print servers because people get mad when printers don't work. Right. But they get in that way and then go do other things and become an insider. So it, would you say that a lot of what you designed your programs to do was to find external hackers and then you discovered that they were good at finding people who were actual insiders, uh, uh, not fake insiders? I would describe it as starting from the standpoint of needing more visibility mm -hmm. um, as to what people are doing at the endpoint. That is where the data is unencrypted. That is where the human beings interact with it. That's where copies are made and files are renamed and all kinds of interesting things happen, right? So <clears throat> you need to be at the endpoint and be there in a way that can uh, store, record. Uh, one of the technologies that's very useful is the DVR capability, so I can replay the number of keystrokes yep. to see what a user has done. That's proved to be defensible in actual legal actions over the past, mm -hmm. um, and it also limits the amount how, of negotiation. Do, to to def defend it, what do you do? Do you collect the information and then only go in when you have a reason to want to replay their? The technology uh, tends to be policy based, yep. so you would make you would you would put policies in to uh, record events that you deem to be suspicious. Mm -hmm. For instance, someone pulls up a password file and hits the print screen and then gets out of the 
thing. That's not normal behavior. So right. every time that happens, we want to do it. We also tie in through partners like Red Owl, who's on the phone here, with other databases like badge reader information. So in other words, if you're signed on to your computer, but you didn't badge in the building today, that's something else I'd like to know. Right? Okay. So I, I can see how this works inside the network, because this is sort of what we do. And networks are are totally monitored now or at least the the ones that are security conscious there's there's not a keystroke that you can uh, make that isn't going to be uh, uh, recorded. Uh, um, I, maybe I should ask Brian, because uh, uh, I guess Red Owl does analytics outside of just the network. Uh, um, uh, what kinds of information can you use to find insider threats? What is particularly likely to pay off in that context? No, thanks, Stuart. Uh, first, I'd make a point. I think uh, I wish that everything was fully monitored, but I think it would surprise you just how many gaps still exist. Uh, you know, one way that many organizations are still vulnerable is somebody can download a file into their work email and then open up a Chrome browser uh, and log on to their personal email and then send information out that way. And unless you're actually running a proxy and taking in logs from that, uh, you can't do any correlation based on what you may be doing, even though that that computer is provided by the employer. So uh, uh, beyond uh, that, let me let me just ask: uh, Is this just the standard thing where you email it to yourself uh, on your Gmail account and then uh, send it out from the Gmail account? No, uh, partially. But what I'm referencing is, you know, and this is what Ed's technology finds: if you take a, you know, you send me a file and I save that locally, and then I open back up my Gmail and I attach that into the Gmail browser window, right? Uh, I won't see that movement and that chain of custody of the document unless I'm running a proxy and ingesting the logs off of those proxies. Okay. But surely, isn't that best practice these days to to, to, to break the encryption on the way to Gmail and uh, inspect what's leaving? For most large organizations, I'd say yes. Uh, but, you know, many are uh, a little reticent uh, of touching some of that information based on, you know, differing opinions of the privacy of their employees. Right. So because uh, cause you're, you're basically are, getting all of their uh, logon credentials for everything. every social media site that they go to. Correct. Correct. And some break encryption, some don't. You don't necessarily need to break encryption to at least have an indication by looking at a hash if a file may, may look and appear similar to another file. And so you can help derive that that may indeed be the same thing. And that's really why our perspective on the insider threat is the more data sources, the better. I mean, we look at this from we want to take in email, we want to take in chat, we sometimes even want to take in voice, we want to take in what you do in the badge, you know, where you are physically, uh, what you're doing on the endpoint. And over time, we want to eventually take in geolocation. Because every time everybody runs a mobile device management system like a good or mobile iron, you know, they are indeed, you know, beaconing out where they are. And nobody really takes advantage of that data source to correlate if somebody is indeed in the building with their personal device. Wow. Yeah, because, of course, if 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 Touchdown and Good and the other uh, uh, programs that uh, companies are installing on their uh, uh, employees' phones don't collect uh, location data, they will in about 20 minutes, right? Exactly. And, you know, that's why when you talk about, you know, you started this by really focusing on the outside in, uh, but our perspective is that, you know, you can look at anomalous behavior to really start to ascertain who may indeed be compromised with a much higher level of fidelity than looking for a command and control server abroad that it looks and appears to be in the IP range of, you know, somebody that's an adversary, whether that's a hacker group or a foreign a service or whoever it may be. But if you're doing a really good job of understanding what is normal for me or you, and then you're, you're monitoring deviations of that normal and alerting on that, that can indeed start to indicate that that is not Brian, that's not Stuart, that's not Ed. Uh, behind that computer today. What about outside uh, open source and social media? Uh, uh, is that something that 
Um, you currently are able to uh, fold into analytics. You hope to uh, fold into analytics at some point. Uh, uh, obviously, there's even more privacy issues associated with getting that information, but some of it's open. Uh, uh, do you utilize that? So we don't uh, right now. We can take in the data if it's provided to us, but due to the reality that we're already touching you know, a sensitive data source in communications, yep. uh, we do stay away from taking in LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter. Uh, but there are certain companies that do take that in. And uh, I think that the, the, what's interesting, back to the NISPOM topic here, is that they're leaving that you know, open. They want to see what becomes, I think, the norm as defined by the contracting community about what data sources are important and they believe salient. Uh, and I think one other data source that should be taken in uh, is kind of pu- some public records uh, because, you know, the, the likely thing that always comes up when you talk about clearances, as we all know, is it only happens every five years periodically. Mm-hmm. There isn't a refresh, whereas if we had an encounter with law enforcement, for example, it's subject to self-reporting. It's not subject to automated reporting. Right. So, Ed, Ed, let me ask you, you brought up the privacy uh, uh, issue, and, 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 and Brian said there are, there are privacy risk, uh, constraints or at least concerns about breaking the crypto so that you can't really tell what people are doing with the data they've taken. Uh, another way that privacy law makes us less safe, less secure, and therefore less private, uh, but that's an editorial. <laughs> uh, outside of the U.S., what are the principal constraints on the kinds of information you can gather, or is it just a, a question of whether you're going to bargain with the Works Council? It's really up to each organization and how they interpret the rules that they're uh, subject right. to. So you let them um, make a decision. Right. About what, so we, and we you have give lots of flexibility about what they collect. Exactly. We have government customers that collect an awful lot. Mm-hmm. We have some financial institutions that collect surprisingly almost more than the government does. Yeah, I believe that. Um, but we have others that want to limit it for some reason. In fact, the technology is also used sometimes to protect privacy and to make sure that certain bits of information don't leave the organization as well. So it can be, and I mentioned this uh, insider threat program. It's like a six, six or seven step program. Step three is determining what level of collection you want to have. The technology enables you to collect everything, including Twitter, Facebook, all kinds of stuff. So you as an organization have to sit down and consciously decide what I will, what I won't collect. And that becomes part of the whole approach to using this technology. So you're right. There's a very good reason why you have to see everything that leaves, which means you have to collect all of the credentials and and, and break the encryption. But that means you have the credentials, and it's just a question of... Uh, employee consent, which usually is forthcoming, uh, uh, before you can log on to their accounts and see what's going on even on the private feeds uh, on their accounts? Well, almost every commercial company, and certainly those that would be subject to the new NISPOM guidelines, you know, has a sign-on screen for the employees that says you are using a company computer and therefore, et cetera, right? The, the McNeely statement, <laughs> you have no privacy, get over it. Yeah, right, <laughs> pretty much. So, um, you know, that's already in a place. So it's really just a question of how much visibility the leaders of the organization feel they need to implement safety and security within the, the population base. So one of the things, and maybe maybe Brian, you can talk to this, one of the things that uh, I was struck by is back in the um, 80s and 90s, uh, uh, the government discovered that one real obvious um, uh, indicator that somebody was getting ready or is likely to become uh, uh, a, a double agent was they got into uh, trouble uh, financially and their credit scores w- uh, uh, were bad for a while and then, you know, surprisingly improved uh, as the, as the uh, Moscow payments came through. Uh, but uh, uh, I would I would have thought that if I were going to look at anything outside, uh, it would be credit scoring and things that contribute to credit scoring, and that's something that uh, you know uh, lots of people are used to having uh, it, uh, organizations they know nothing about look at their credit scores. Uh, is that something that that you're seeing in the um, in the insider threat uh, policing business? You know, we haven't to date. It's, it's a great point. Uh, and I, I would say that information like that uh, is inevitably going to become part of the pattern 
I think what we are seeing that is germane is HR information. So we're writing connectors to Workday, for example, uh, to pull in information on somebody uh, in regards to have they had some bad performance appraisals recently? Mm-hmm. Have they not received a bonus uh, when they expected one? Have a colleague reported some sort of suspicious behavior? And the fact that that information is now automated, but you know traditionally has been siloed, we want to take advantage of that and over time subject that individual to enhanced monitoring due to uh, some sort of HR information because we have reason to suspect that they may indeed be more vulnerable than normal. You know, what What I'm struck by talking to both of you is how kind of common sense and ungee whiz the uh, ultimate result is. I, uh, nonetheless, it has taken a lot of technical expertise to get to the point where we just can keep track of people with bad performance reviews and folks who are reporting sus- sus- suspicious behavior and like actual suspicious behavior on the network. Right. We uh, we run a test range for insider threat data over Maryland, and Red Owl has been there uh, working with their algorithms to do exactly that, to begin to identify individuals in a population that are starting a tendency toward the kind of behavior that leads to insider threats. And then we have automatic ex- escalations in the monitoring software so that we can monitor them more and more tightly based on what they're doing. Yeah, so I would have thought, the other thing that I would have thought is that uh, if somebody's getting ready to leave... Now this is this is less government insider threat and more sort of the financial industry uh, insider threat. Uh, uh, but if somebody is getting ready to leave, probably a leading indicator is the number of updates to their uh, LinkedIn homepage they make uh, as they say, "Oh God, this really should be rewritten." Um, and you can, you know, if 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 you're a contact, if you're connected to them, you're going to get a notice every time they change their uh, LinkedIn page, which. I, I, it's kind of amazing that nobody uh, apparently is collecting that information yet. But uh, you know, Brian's going to tell me next. Uh, you know, the next turn of the product is going to do that. Uh, Andy um, raised an interesting question. He said the government definition of insider threat focuses on the mechanisms, the standards for getting a security clearance, which is, you know, uh, didn't smoke marijuana in the last five years or didn't do do drugs in the last five years uh, uh, and uh, uh, don't use alcohol to excess, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, uh, my memory is there's there's probably some... Thirteen uh, of them. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, um, but most of them are not... Um, Network. Yeah. In, in other words, one of the 13 is about improper network usage. You know, signing on to the wrong account, things like that. Mm-hmm. But the others are alcohol, foreign preference, uh, uh, certain personal conduct, criminality. What do you What do you all do to monitor those other behaviors that don't necessarily immediately lead to signing on to the wrong database? So, so I like the iconic image of a manufacturing floor of the fifties and sixties. If you remember, the plant manager or president always had a window office looking out over the floor, not the golf course, the floor. The message was, that's enterprise visibility. Fast forward to today's enterprise, and executives are flying blind. But the one thing all your people are doing is they're on a keyboard somewhere. Might be a mobile device, might be a PC. So their behavior on that keyboard tells you what they're doing, right? And it's can be much more granular than, you know, linking out to Facebook. It can be the frequency of emails to your coworkers or your boss. It can be the language you use in those emails, right? All of this is in the world of the analytics we need to be able to tell when a population is getting disaffected or when a good employee for fine standing for years is all of a sudden thinking that he doesn't like working here anymore, that yeah. sort of thing. I'm 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 starting to worry now that uh, next time I I type in my password wrong more than five times <laughs> instead of just getting locked out I'm going to have to take a breathalyzer. I, well, that's one of the key things is you, you know, know how much of this is uh, is just innocent uh, uh, not nefarious activity versus just. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the analogy yeah, I gave. I make a, I make a, go ahead. If I could, I'd make a few quick points. One is on the, I like Stuart's example on LinkedIn and levers. You know, for one of our clients, we were able to uh, predict who was likely going to resign from the organization by assessing their communication patterns. And specifically, what we were looking for was how often they did an internal to external versus internal to internal. 
And presumably what that indicates is that when you are poised to leave a certain employer, you may indeed increase your interactions with your colleagues in your network rather than those internally. And, and that was different than previously. And so there are various indicators that when we all think about what we've done when we've left jobs, you know, when you look back on it, it makes sense that there are some observables there that are indicators that you're going to leave. And I think the, the second point I'd make uh, to, you know, what are the, uh, you know, qualifying criteria for a security clearance is, you know, part of the, the challenge here with what they're trying to do with the NISPOM guidance is really, you know, hold contractors accountable for uh, maybe taking away the compromised insider, which we've spent some time on here, but those that are malicious are those that are just unwittingly uh, and they're sloppy in their behavior. Because according to the Verizon data breach report, 44% of data loss is due to somebody that's just malicious or negligent in, in how they're accessing data. And increasingly, that's how information is getting out, let alone if somebody is suitable to hold a security clearance. And to me, I think they're, they're quite separate in assessing suitability for the clearances rather than do you have, you know, robust means to protect your data, uh, because, especially because we know how targeted it is. Yep. So, uh, last question. Uh, um, companies that uh, are subject to this rule and, and, and they've got until November to uh, come up with something, I, are you seeing them doing the kind of old FSO walks around and uh, uh, looks to, at people and maybe uh, scans their files? Or is this the wave of the future doing the analysis from the network? I think you have to automate it to, to Brian's point. You know, it's, it's gotten to the point where we can't rely on the self-reporting. Mm-hmm. You know, we need, we need to have mechanisms in place to assure that we're doing this. And, you know, this is one of those government requirements, unlike some, that actually does help the security stance of the organization itself, right? right? Even if government didn't require it, uh, best practices in this day and age would be to have technologies that allow you to track and monitor this kind of activity. Yeah. And I have to say, Brian, uh, uh, I was prepared to be scared at uh, how aggressive the <laughs> analytics were, but I, uh, they, they seem, at least at this point, pretty obvious and the sort of thing you'd expect your employer to know and care about already. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't disagree. I mean, as much as I, we are uh, advanced analytics, I think the real computational uh, maturation that you've seen from vendors like us is frankly the ability to correlate this information. And to us, that's bringing in structured and unstructured data at the same time, yeah. handling it in real time, applying analytics at scale, and alerting back. And, you know, just that alone. The example I often make is, uh, I did a presentation and I talk about Netflix because we run the same back end as Netflix does, Elastic. Uh, and, you know, what Netflix was able to do, I still find fascinating in the ability to associate based on, you know, what you and I like to watch on TV and give us, you know, generic recommendations that, uh, you know, are frankly pretty good most of the time. Uh, yeah, I like that plus, plus I, if, if, time. if I remember, they, they could uh, divine our sexual preference, too. Yeah. Uh, but, but the reason I bring them up is when you think about what they're trying to do, it, they are looking at what is more of a normalized data set because they can associate me, you, and Ed as pretty much maybe the same person. Maybe our habits are exactly the same. What we're trying to do in our work is look at an organization of 150,000 employees and actually look at each of them individually because we can't just associate based on a groups of uh, a thousand and we need to take this down to the individual and that's where really the challenge lies in analytics is how specific can you get because ultimately, as you hear in, in, in uh, numerous podcasts that you do, is that it's managing the alerts and being more specific with what you're looking at. And, and that's really where we're pushing with analytics today. Yeah, I, I am amazed when I talk to people how often when they're talking about this kind of thing, it comes back to natural language processing and the ability to extract meaning from natural language, which is someplace, something where there have been a lot of advances uh, and you don't have to ask people to uh, put their behavior into a spreadsheet or a database before you can start analyzing it. Yeah, no, we, uh, we do quite a bit of NLP, uh, to define that for, for the audience here. You know, the natural language processing, 
has really been driven, uh, you know, by uh, Google, as we all know, based on how, you know, they operate and, you know, we look at our advertising next to our email day in and day out. Uh, but, and that's become a commodity and that's become open source to a degree. Where we have focused is in four areas. Uh, one is in kind of threading of content. And that is to ensure that one message is one message. Again, kind of a solution to make things more efficient. The second is just disclaimer detection. If you think about every disclaimer, uh, you know, text at the bottom of every step toe email, you know, you want to strip that away because those words of confidential and proprietary, you don't want to alert on those. Uh, third uh, and fourth, and those are going to be of real interest to you, is sentiment. How can you actually ascertain if somebody is about to be negative? What are they doing uh, that is indicative of, you know, disgruntlement? And then finally, the one that I'm most excited about is switching language. Because, you know, this happens particularly in, you know, large multinational corporations where they use uh, various different languages. And if I'm communicating mostly in English, but then I change to French or German, uh, whatever it may be, am I hiding uh, communications in that language? And how do I spot that language changing and then alerting on the language change as an indicator of suspicious behavior? That's great. So I, I, I'm going to close with my a story about the perils of uh, failing to uh, uh, edit out disclaimers. When I was a law clerk for Justice Stevens, we had the seven dirty words case. This is really, this is ancient history for almost everybody who's listening to this, but it was like words you couldn't say on the radio. I, uh, uh, and, uh, uh, Justice Stevens said to me, uh, so, uh, how often have these words appeared in, uh, the, uh, uh, in judicial opinions? And I said, well, great, you should ask because we can now have the ability to do an electronic search of every decision ever issued by the federal courts. And I will go up and I will enter each of the seven <laughs> words into the computer and come back to you with an answer. And I came back and the answer was 725,000 times. And he said, really? Because, uh, you know, these are dirty words. Uh, and I said, well, you have to understand that every time somebody wants to abbreviate the citation for Title I, we end up with a hit. I, <laughs> so I, for sure, you have to get rid of the uh, the boilerplate. Uh, I, uh, Ed, uh, Brian, thank you so much. Andy, uh, thank you for dropping in uh, uh, to uh, illuminate this uh, this area. Uh, and uh, Katie and Maury, thanks for uh, uh, being here. Uh, we are on vacation officially now. Uh, we're open for feedback, of course. Uh, send uh, your feedback to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Or leave us a review. If you really miss us, uh, say so on iTunes or other podcast aggregators. This has been episode 126 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're off on vaca- uh, vacation on hiatus until the uh, day after uh, uh, Labor Day, uh, uh, early September. So uh, uh, have a great time, have a great vacation, and uh, uh, we will be coming back refreshed and enthusiastic uh, the first week of September. Mm-hmm.